You're listening to TIP. So a few months ago, we had a huge name in finance on our show. And the gentleman's name is Ed Thorpe. And Ed Thorpe, his personal net worth is around $900 million. And during our discussion, I was talking to Ed Thorpe about certain ideas about what might happen in the future, particularly about central banking. And I asked Ed a really difficult question, and I was kind of expecting him to tell me, yeah, I think there's a high probability that that might be the case with respect to central banks. And what I got back from him was kind of an interesting response. Ed basically said to me, I have no idea. And he responded so quickly without any hesitation that it just shocked me. And during that interview, Ed said, you know, you really got to read this book called Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. And because of that interview and because of that moment that I experienced with Ed Thorpe and how he responded to this question about forecasting, and then he recommended this book for us to read. That's why we decided to do this episode today on super forecasting. And everyone really forecasts, whether about it's the weather beating the morning traffic or it's the financial markets. And while forecasting might appear to be a game, it's in fact very real and the stakes are high and substantial. As a society, it's important that we hone the skills of forecasting because countries start embracing evidence-based policies, which basically means that we are trying to forecast. And it's also true on a personal level because the ability to forecast is the difference between success and failure in life and business. So in this episode, we're investigating why some people forecast better than others, and we'll teach you the techniques to think rational about your own predictions. All right, guys. So if you're ready, we're ready. Let's go ahead and do this. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Okay, so uh, let's get this episode going here. Stig, as we said in the intro, we're talking about the book Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. And I really like this book. I'm just going to throw that out there. I thoroughly enjoyed some of the discussion here because when you're talking about stock investing or any type of investing, it all comes down to what you kind of expect the future to look like and what you're kind of estimating those future cash flows to be. And you're discounting those back to which you think your return might be. And so this was such a relevant book for us. And the writing in it was really good. It was easy to understand. It wasn't a difficult read. But in general, I really liked it. I'm just trying to capture your thoughts here before we start plowing through this chapter by chapter. Yeah, you know, I think it's very important for people to realize that we forecast all the time. And as stock investors, we automatically think about stock investing. But you're also forecasting whenever you're leaving in the morning, can I beat the traffic? I mean, it happens all the time. And how do you come up with these conclusions and how do you forecast the best? And that was really the interesting thing about this book. All right. So let's just go ahead and jump into this. So chapter one is titled An Optimistic Skeptic. And so this chapter was pretty generic to start off the book. And what it's really getting at is when we think about forecasting into the future, a lot of people might have the cop-out statement that you can't predict the future is impossible. And that's not true either. So the example that Tetlock and Gardner use in their book is hey, if you looked at the forecast of what the weather might be tomorrow, there's a pretty high probability that they're going to be really close to what the truth is. 
with respect to the temperature, whether it's going to be sunny, rainy. But where it gets more difficult is when you start stepping to a week into the future and it becomes more fuzzy. And what they're really trying to get at is this idea of an array of possibilities. And this is something that we've talked about on the show numerous times in the past. But when you think about where you're at right now in time, you know what's happening around you. But if you had to forecast what's going to happen in the next minute, you have a pretty good idea of what will happen in the next minute. If you had to forecast in an hour, the possibilities of what could happen start opening up more. Your left and right limit of potential starts opening up more. And when you push that out further and further, call it a year, that's when it starts getting to be very difficult, depending on what you're talking about. And so that's what they're really talking about in the first chapter is opening up this idea that forecasting can be done. It's just the difficulty and the probability of that changes as you extend that timeline into the future. And the author has a really interesting discussion about how we don't usually check up on forecasters' track record. So whenever you hear people in the news talking about what they think will happen, you don't talk about if the forecast has been accurate in the past. And he relates that to a sports team. Like, would you ever acquire a player if his stats wasn't good, if he can't prove that he's actually capable of carrying out that task? Something else that I want to highlight is the whole name of the book, Super Forecasting, is this idea that both of the authors conducted this experiment. And they were working with the government on this idea. Are there people out there that are better at conducting forecasts of the future than the average person? And what they found out is that this is a true statement, that there are a super forecasting group of people in the world that are good at this. They statistically prove that they can outperform the typical person when making predictive analysis. And a perfect example would be the whole North Korea thing that's happening in the world right now and you know, the end of the first quarter of 2017. There's a lot of talk about, is the United States or China or anybody going to go into North Korea and do something? So that would be an example of an event that they would have super forecasters versus regular forecasters trying to predict whether that's actually going to happen or not. And so through their research, they had proven that super forecasters exist. And so in this book, What they're doing is they're outlining and trying to understand what separates those people from the normal forecasters. Why are they able to make better predictions than the typical person? And so he goes chapter by chapter talking about some of these dynamics on how they're able to do it better than the typical person. And the interesting thing is that the intelligence agencies actually are really interested in this because what they prove in this book is that the best forecasters are a lot more efficient than the agencies. Which shouldn't make any kind of sense because they have thousands of thousands of highly skilled people trying to predict or forecast, if you will, what's going to happen in the future. So why is it that a few handful of people are doing so much better? What can we learn from them that can be implemented into our intelligence services? So that's also one of the reasons why he's been writing this book. And a really neat highlight is that some of these people that are considered super forecasters are like one gentleman was a farmer out in the middle of the US who had no government ties and like some of the backgrounds of these people are just quite phenomenal and you're wondering how are they different and how are they able to do this without the background of maybe a trained professional that has a niche in a specific area and so the authors talk about why that exists so we're going to get into some of that so let's jump into chapter 2 and the title of this chapter is illusions of knowledge And the premise of this chapter is pretty simple. What he's saying is that a person who's very knowledgeable in a specific area, 
they sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes have a bias towards what it is that they actually know versus don't know. And he uses an example of a doctor who's providing a recommendation for medicine that a person should take. And the person who's receiving this diagnosis and the prescription that's associated with that, they just take it at face value because the person has the assumption. They're just like, well, this person has to be right. They're a doctor. They have to be 100% right is the mindset of a lot of people. But what the authors talk about is that is actually pretty far from the truth. In fact, a lot of doctors misdiagnose different things and they get it wrong. And that this culture in medicine is that it's not, or at least it wasn't in the past. I think they've made a lot of changes more recently in the last 10 years, but some of this still persists in the culture where people don't question, are you making the right decision? Where are we making a mistake? What is wrong about my analysis when I'm thinking through this. And he uses the medical community to kind of highlight this illusion of knowledge is the way that they describe it in the book. Basically, we're talking about confirmation bias, a type of bias that we had talked about many times before, where you are always looking to find a reason why you're right and other people are wrong. I definitely know that for myself. Whenever I read something in the news about the stock market being correctly priced or even undervalued sometimes, Immediately, I don't want to read it. And if I do read it, I'm like, I'm having this mindset of now I'm really going to try to disprove this guy. And that's even before I started reading the article where he's saying that if you have an open mindset, something that's really characteristic from a super forecaster and not saying, I know what the truth is, but rather I'm seeking the truth, then you'll be a lot more successful. So I try to learn from that. And for the person who's hearing this and thinking, well, how can I prevent that from happening? I think it's really simple. So in order for a person to prevent confirmation bias from occurring, let's just use the stock market, for example. My personal opinion is that it's highly priced and that there's a lot of risk in owning it right now. If that's truly my opinion, the articles I should be reading are articles that support the stock market going higher. And people who think that it basically has more to run and their reasonings for why it has more to run. I should be reading all those kind of articles to counter my opinion and to basically remove that bias. Now, am I good at that? No, I'm not good at that. And I think part of the, <laughs> the first step is admitting that. But I think that that is a really, really important highlight and something that you take away from this book that a lot of people definitely don't do because the majority of people, they have an opinion and then they go and search for that on Google. And what are they going to find? They're going to find other people that have similar opinions and then they're going to read that and it's going to solidify that opinion. And they're going to even get more hardened into that opinion instead of trying to troubleshoot it and find maybe the array of potential outcomes that support the direction of forecast going in a different direction than what they expect. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. 
Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So there's a short, really neat story about this in the book. And what one of the super forecasters have done is to program an algorithm so that in his news feed, he will get like a random selection of news articles and he can't see where it comes from, so he won't be biased. Now, I have no clue how you program anything like that, but I just love that story. It really tells you about something that it's really your mindset and your approach to forecasting really makes the difference. It, it just shows you how unbiased these super forecasters, they know they're influenced by this. And so they've done everything that they can to remove these cognitive biases. They're experts in cognitive biases at the end of the day. That's what I really took away from the book. They understand these things and they've designed the way that they receive information to prevent those biases from impacting them. And that is such an important takeaway from the book in total. All right, let's move on to the third chapter and that's called Keeping Score. And what the author talks about in this chapter is that he has found that the more confident experts are, the more wrong they're also. And I kind of like that analysis. Basically, what he's saying is that the most famous forecasters, basically the experts you see on TV, their skill is not forecasting. That is that they're really good at telling a clear narrative. And they have this very confident attitude whenever they're telling that narrative. And it really reminds me of the interview we had with Guy Spear back in episode 14, where he's saying that he doesn't want to give the narrative of a stock whenever he bought it because he doesn't want to be too attached to it. He wants to be able to sell it whenever he needs to 
and he wouldn't like to come up as you know a flip flop or anything like that if he decides to sell that the next day. So he wants to be as detached as he possible can. All right, so jump into chapter four. This one's titled Super Forecasters, and we briefly mentioned earlier about the study and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that I think is worthy of highlighting here in chapter four is this idea that the super forecasters are people that question everything, and they basically design a roadmap from a particular event. So think of it like this, We're going back to the North Korea example. The question comes down to, is there going to be some type of event, a war or something like that in North Korea? That would be the question, whether that's true or false. And the way that these super forecasters will go through the thought process of this, they will start breaking the question down into subcomponents. And then they're assigning probabilities to these different subcomponents. So for that example, is there going to be a war in North Korea? And what they would do is they'd say, well, let's look at it from a political landscape. What do we think the probability is assigned to the political landscape? What are we thinking the probability is that North Korea could potentially do something like this that, to set it off? What would be the implications of China? They would dissect the entire array of potential reasons of how that could eventually happen. And then the corresponding probabilities for each one of those particular events from playing out. And the analysis would be done from a pro and a con of why it could or could not happen. And so they're very analytical and very organized in their thinking, which I think is very different from the way the typical person approaches a complex and difficult problem like that. Because the normal person would, like Stig was saying earlier, they'll latch onto a narrative. They'll maybe hear a friend or somebody else who says, well, you know, China in the past has always done this. So that's why there is not going to be a war in North Korea. And that's the end of their analysis. That's the end of their thought process of how they broke it down. Whereas the super forecaster is going so much deeper and so much more involved in the way that they're processing all the variables at play for a particular event. And that is so important when you're trying to think through a complex problem in forecasting. So in chapter five, he talks about whether or not super forecasters are super smart because it seems very advanced, perhaps, what they're doing. And what he finds is that IQ is not fully predicting super forecasting, even though it is actually important. He's saying that forecasters typically perform really well if they're in the top 30 of the population. And then there's another step until the super forecasters, which are all in the top 20% of the population. But he said that something that's even more important than IQ, that is how much they enjoy cognitive challenges. Do they like to do Sudoku and crosswords? That was actually his examples in the book. And what is the openness to experiences? And he came up with this example. He said that one of the questions they asked super forecasters was they wanted them to predict the presidential election in Ghana. Now, very few people outside of Ghana would know about the presidential election. So it basically comes down to this. How do you think as a human being? Are you thinking that doesn't concern me? I don't want to spend my time on it. Or are you thinking this is a great chance to learn more about Ghana? And if that's what you're thinking, then you have the mindset of a super forecaster. Because as a super forecaster, you need to acquire new knowledge and you need to come up with good realistic thesis about what you think will happen. And there's no amount of hard work that can compensate for you being open to that experience of gaining new knowledge. 
So the next chapter is chapter six, and the title of this is Super Quants. And what this chapter really gets into is the idea of confidence in some of the predictions and the probabilities that are being determined by these super forecasters. And so one of the examples in the book, and I'm going to read here from my notes, the example that's used in the book is for financial advisors. People usually trust confident advisors faster when compared to advisors that are less confident. On the face of it, accuracy and confidence may seem different, but they're actually correlated. And for many people, we place so much confidence in this correlation that we exaggerate it unintentionally. So this is a bias that people have that whenever they see a confident person who's maybe saying, this is what's going to happen and these are all the reasons why, they immediately put way too much emphasis on the probability that it's actually going to occur. And so that is a potential defect in our thinking. This is a bias that people have. So to combat this and to overcome this, when you get around a person who is very confident and they're giving you very profound examples on why something might or might not happen, if you can't explain why they're wrong or you can't provide other reasons why that thinking might be flawed, the mindset should be that you don't have enough confidence to understand the counter argument to something and you should probably back down on what you think the probability actually is from that confidence coming from the other person. So let's say somebody gives you a great argument. You say the probability of that happening is 80% based on what they told you. But if you can't figure out ways to think through why that argument might be wrong, your assessment of the confidence of that needs to maybe be shaped and maybe degraded and brought down because you can't provide other means to troubleshoot that. Okay, so chapter seven is titled Super News Junkies. And this one really revolves around a bias called consistency bias. And this is something that we read a lot about in the Robert Cialdini books, where when a person puts an opinion out there, they have a lot of momentum to keep that opinion because they want to remain consistent in their thinking. Because there's this stigma in society that when you change your opinion, you're a person of volatile thinking and that you aren't confident in what you think. And it's definitely viewed from a cultural standpoint as being a liability for a person's behavior. So as a result, most people get hardened into these positions that they have. Like, I have the opinion that X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Even if they have a ton of proof later that's unraveled and shown to them that they're wrong, a lot of the times people will even become more hardened in that opinion to remain consistent in their thinking. So what he's getting at here in chapter seven, what the authors are getting at in chapter seven is that these super forecasters take a very different approach to this bias. In fact, they're very quick to change their opinion. When new information is presented, they're very quick to say, oh, that's really interesting. I think maybe the way I was thinking about this before is wrong. And now I might actually have the exact opposite opinion. That's the hallmark of a super forecaster is that way of thinking. And so a real famous investor that immediately comes to mind for me when reading through this chapter was Stanley Drunkenmiller. Because when Drunkenmiller is on TV, I've heard him say, I don't even know how many times, you know, this is my opinion today. I think gold's going to go up. But, you know, I might change my opinion tomorrow and I might actually have the exact opposite opinion. I might put on the exact opposite play tomorrow if new facts are presented to me. And so that is definitely a person of super forecasting mentality and thought that is being presented. So this chapter title, Super News Junkies, they're constantly reading the headlines. They're constantly reading 
both sides of an argument and they're constantly updating their projection on what they think the probability of something happening is. So if they had an estimate that it's 63% probable one day, they might read a news article and then determine that now it's shifted to 57% likelihood the following day based off of this information that they got. One final point from this chapter that I think is important to highlight is that super forecasters are really good at picking apart the critical variables that are driving the ultimate outcome of something. They don't get caught in the weeds of ideas or evidence that's really not going to produce the final outcome. And I think that's a really, really important part. I don't know how a person hones that skill, but I definitely agree with that analysis that they present in the book. A really good quote that he has in this chapter was from the British economist John Maynard Keynes. And apparently he said that when the facts change, my opinion changes. I think it's also really a cultural thing, as you also said before, Preston, because especially in the West, we don't like what we would call flip-flowers. We don't like people to change their opinion. We see them as inconsistent. We see them as not having perhaps a good analysis because why are they changing their opinion? I think that's something I thought a lot about. For instance, after we did the first episode about gold with Jim Rickards, I remember thinking, hmm, perhaps I was wrong about how I looked at gold. Not in the sense that I would like to have it as an investment, but in terms of what does gold mean? Like it's, it's actually a currency. And what that really meant after also reading his book. And the first thing I thought about after reading the book was 30 episodes ago or whatever, I said something completely opposite. And so I was considering, could I really say on the podcast that I've changed my opinion? How would people you know, think about it? And how would they perceive me? Would they perceive me as a flip-flopper? Instead of just you know, being authentic and said, I don't know if I'm right, but I think I'm getting smarter about this subject. And this is what I mean now. And this is what I meant in the past. And this is why it's different. I realize his point about when the facts change, you change your opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, slash SIPC. 
Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So chapter eight is called Perpetual Beta, and it's about how it's hard to look back at your previous forecast. It actually turns out that Forecasters have a really hard time remembering what they actually predicted in the past, especially if they were wrong. And they actually have this experiment when they ask forecasters what they thought about a given event. And the situation it was the Berlin Wall. And it actually turned out that they misremembered by a margin of 31%. So that would mean that 71% thought it would fall when it was actually only 40%. And this is the problem we have all as forecasters. We tend to remember the times that we were actually spot on on the predictions and kind of forgetting or coming up with excuses whenever we were wrong. And we see that in the stock market all the time. Like whenever you're talking to other people, a fellow investors, they will be telling you about all the times they were correct in the analysis, whether or not it was because of the analysis. And it was probably also because of bad luck and whatnot that the bad investment didn't turn out. So in chapter nine, this is called super teams. And the best way to describe this is the idea of groupthink. And I think most people that listen to the show, because I think we've talked about this a few different times, are aware of this bias that occurs when a group of people get together. One person throws out an idea and everyone kind of feeds off of, and it's almost like confirmation bias as well, where people are feeding off of that idea and they're going in this certain direction and they fail to go back and shoot holes through the argument of why that approach or that forecast and direction that they're looking to go might be wrong. And the book does a great job describing an example of this, and they use uh, President Kennedy's administration with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the team's forecast as a group of what they actually thought was going to happen versus how it actually turned out. So I really liked the uh, story that they provided in the book. It was a really good example of how this goes wrong in many different ways 
and ways that you can also go about trying to prevent it from happening, which is really kind of opening up to the group and saying, okay, so who has the opposite opinion? Who sees this from this vantage point? What do you think the probability of this occurring is? And going around the room and kind of forcing those people who normally don't talk to throw ideas or, and here's another example, going to a person who has a really strong opinion and says, this is what it is. And then going back to that same person and saying, I want to hear you argue the other side of the opinion here. I know you think that this is what's going to happen, but I want to hear you argue the opposite opinion of what you have and forcing that person to think outside the box. And then whenever you would create that dynamic in the group, what you're going to have is you're going to have everyone else in the room thinking through, oh, well, here's maybe how you could argue the other side of that. And you start getting everybody in the room starting to think of ideas of how they could argue the other side of it. So much of this is driven by the leader who's basically moderating the discussion. So in this case, it would be President Kennedy. He has such an important responsibility in driving this conversation and most importantly, remaining neutral in the way he's accepting the information. Because as soon as all those subordinates in the room start seeing that maybe he's leaning in one way or the other, they now immediately start tailoring their discussions and their narratives in that direction because he's their boss. They want to you know, look good in his eyes. And so that's a really important consideration for anybody in a leadership role to try to go about this from a super forecaster perspective is to really try to keep things in a balanced argument mode throughout the entire discussion. Yeah. And they really found that diversity is a strength whenever it comes to these super forecaster teams. And it basically comes down to that different people have different ways of collecting the data and how they process it. And I don't know if that's also explains why super forecasters are doing better than intelligence agencies. Again, I don't know anyone in an intelligence agency, so I would know, but I would kind of assume that a lot of them would have a more similar background in the teams than what we see in this book, where they just basically come from whatever background you can think of. Because the most important thing is to avoid the consensus fallacy. And that is that we are so similar and we like each other. We don't want to have disagreements. So why can't we just go with this conclusion and then run with that? On the other hand, a group cannot be too diverse. We can't have too many disagreements because if we see people having too many disagreements, the author also found people wanting to win the argument rather than finding the truth or find the right forecast. It's more like, my argument is better than yours and I don't like you. So they're more looking into it like themselves and like having a sense of fulfillment from winning an argument or see the shouting mats than actually come up with a good answer. Boy, is that one true. <laughs> when you think it through, I mean, think about it. How many people are trying to save face and more it becomes an ego thing than let's discover what the truth is and regardless of how that might make me look in the long run. But let's jump straight into chapter 10 because it revolves totally into this conversation, which the title for chapter 10 is The Leader's Dilemma. And what it discusses is that the three key characteristics that most people attribute to strong leadership is confidence, decisiveness, and vision. And so when you look at those first two words, confidence and decisiveness, it really kind of goes against a lot of the things that we were describing in the previous chapter where the leader needs to be uncommittal. He needs to provide this framework for two opposing points of view to play out like as if he has no idea what choice he's going to make in order to 
create that environment of disparity between the two sides of the argument so that the truth can be unveiled. And so the authors say that although there's this dilemma between being a great leader with confidence and decisiveness, leaders can implement this. They can display these attributes of a super forecaster, but it's very difficult for many leaders, especially ones that maybe have been in charge for a long time and they have this army of staff around them that are accustomed to feeding that leader exactly what they want to hear. And it's a really interesting discussion. I think it's a really important highlight, especially for anybody in a managerial role. So let's go ahead and jump to chapter 11. And this one is titled, Are They Really So Super? And Stig's going to go ahead and cover this one. So basically in this chapter, he's trying to come up with counter arguments by his thesis for this book that super forecasters actually exist, why that might be wrong. And he presents the argument from Nassim Taleb's book, The Black Swan. We talked about that book in episode 47. And the premise for the black swan is that just because you can prove it's not correct doesn't mean it's correct. And the reason why he's called that black swan was that he was talking about living in Europe in the 1500s and you could never ever imagine a black swan because they didn't exist in Europe. But just because you haven't seen one, just because you haven't experienced it, just because people haven't told you about it doesn't mean that they don't exist. And he brings up the same premise for his book. He said, like, I have all this great evidence why there's something called super forecasters, and I think I can identify why I'm right about my thesis. But what can I do to prove myself wrong in the sense that there's probably nothing like super forecasters, that this is all wrong? And I think that really shows something about a very humble attitude that he has to his own work. I think in general, at the end of this chapter, the thing that the authors are really getting at is I think they have a deep appreciation for Nassim Taleb and some of the research that he's done with the book Black Swan and from a statistics standpoint. But I think that they disagree with Taleb where Taleb really kind of writes off that anyone who's trying to make forecasts in the future, you know, this is probably how Nassim Taleb would say it, is an idiot. And, uh, <laughs> and I think they have a much more positive outlook in their research through these super forecasters that it can be done with a very high level of predictability and confidence from the people that are very good at it. So I just see that they have kind of a conflicting point of view, and that was highlighted in the 11th chapter of the book. Moving on to the final chapter, which is what's next, it's just kind of a really quick recap of the book. The authors talk about how forecasting is really important for a business's success and for really a government's success in order to accurately predict what's potentially on the horizon. And he talks about if you use the framework that's outlined in the book, you're not going to get perfect results, but you'll have a framework for keeping track of what your forecasts have been. And that was a really important part in the book is don't just make a bunch of forecasts and then don't look back at what the track record is because you have no way of actually determining whether you're in this category of super forecaster without keeping a track record statistically proving whether you're an outlier or not. I think that that's a really important consideration is the historical reference of how well a person has done it after making a hundred or a thousand different forecasts and using evidence-based policies in order to develop the framework for how those forecasts are being conducted. So he says that if you're going about it in that manner, it could actually be very fruitful for the individual who's invested a lot of time and effort into honing this skill. And I completely agree with him. 
So that's our analysis of the book. I really enjoyed this. I found it to be really interesting. If you're a person who isn't aware of a lot of biases, this would be a great read for you to kind of get caught up on maybe where there's some flaws in your thinking, especially when it comes to assessing where investments might be going into the future. And if you're interested in reading our executive summary of Super Forecasting, you can go into our show notes or you can sign up for our email list where we send out PDF files with the executive summaries twice a month. But guys, that was all that we had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.